You are back. You are back. And it says we are live. Woohoo. Hey, welcome everybody to the Dan Vogel live show. We are here live. Sorry for the hold up, but it's yeah. all better late than never. We decided we'd act like Mormons tonight, right, Dan? <laughs> yeah. Better late than never. Oh, man, that's a slow lag. You there? Yes, I'm right here. Okay, good. I just got to... That okay. thing you heard was uh, my other computer. All right. <laughs> just so we're not just so we're not lagging with each other so that we can have a yeah. good uh, communication here. Woohoo. Mormon standard time. Hello everybody. Yes, uh, Arnold Vogel. Yes, it's Arnold Vogel. What does that mean? Arnold Vogel. Uh, instead of Arnold Schwarzenegger, you are Arnold Vogel. I don't know. You're the oh, I'm back. Maybe You're that's back. I'm back. I'll be back. Yeah. I'll be back. Yes, even though yeah. Johann Sebastian is the one that said it. So but I'm here. Yep. Very good. Good to see you again, man. We're yeah, gonna, it's been a while. Skip the formal opening. Forget all that noise. We've got yeah, I hope everybody had a good holidays and all that. I did. How about yourself? Yeah, we're quiet. That's the best kind. So was mine. I deliberately just stayed home, man. So this yeah. is good. All right. Hey, uh, hey, everybody. Welcome. I see a whole bunch of you. Uh, glad you could show up, even if you were late. If hey, if nothing else, always blame the members. We're doing the Mormon church leadership thing, you know. Well, I said we were on Mormon time. There you go. Yes, we are. So let's get the uh, we have to have an opening prayer and pass the sacrament and we can get going here. So, okay. All right, you guys. Thank you all for showing up. We've got a great show tonight. Uh, Dan just blew my mind when he sent me slides we have over 50 fabulous slides to go through so this we are wringing our hands ready to rock yeah and we started late oh man that is correct we're starting late so we're only gonna have to go till 11 o'clock it's all good so <laughs> okay dan uh you, talk fast. you have decided you want to respond to cheryl and nick a little bit and carry forward with your information on the yeah. book of mormon uh and masonry so why don't we get started and you just kind of take over and let's see what you've got going on i'm gonna want me to open up these slides just yes, yet we'll show the first one it kind of uh, warms us up so i'm responding to the response to the, the response <laughs> uh, rebuttal um, but I'll be adding information right. along the way so awesome. uh, but I want to make clear at the top here that uh, while the authors of Method Infinite have done some things well the book has some serious historical flaws uh, in speaking with some of my historical friends I can say I'm not alone in this opinion. I'm I'm focusing on problems because for me they overshadow some of the good stuff. Now concerning Cheryl and Nick's rebuttal uh, of my partial critique of their book, generally I found them in their re in their rebuttal to me a couple of weeks ago or so. Um, 
I found them unprepared to respond and quick to dismiss my points, sometimes without understanding them, which made some of their responses for me a bit incoherent and uh, mere repetition of the original position. Uh, Nick in particular admitted that he hadn't watched half of my diatribes, quote unquote, and tried to dismiss my generally negative critique of some uh, as some kind of psychological obsession, which even if true is irrelevant. Based on his understanding of Jungian psychology, he asserted that my critique was not scholarly, was not a scholarly reaction. That's a quote. Uh, not yet. <laughs> Sorry, I just wanted to make sure I wasn't missing Nick. So, okay, you let me know when I'm supposed okay. to. Okay. So, according to Nick, my response was not a scholarly reaction, but an emotional reaction. Remember that? Um, what kind of scholar talks like that, I must say? I'm reviewing the book in a scholarly fashion, and Nick repeatedly, here and on Facebook, makes it personal. This is why moving to a debate situation, which some have called for, would be extremely foolish on my part. I have a lot of important points to make and I could not be, which could not be made in such a situation. I'm not here to debate, maybe later, <laughs> but I'm here to teach. The main reason I'm responding to their rebuttal is because I think some things can be learned. I'm being charitable, if I'm being charitable, I can understand how my critique could be distressing to Nick to the point of his no longer wanting to listen. I'm no expert, but that seems like an emotional response, okay, to me. Um, as an author myself, I can empathize, empathize, empathize with him, but I'm doing what scholars do, and I'm taking their statements seriously, I hope you can tell that, and responding thoughtfully. Cheryl wondered why I haven't commented more directly on their presentation of the Book of Mormon as anti-spurious masonry. I've been slow to get to chapters five and six, and because, partially because, I have been, taken time to respond to their comments, which I think have been profitable. So in my response to their rebuttal, I will be exploring the question, is the Book of Mormon anti-Masonry or anti-spurious Masonry? I will skip over most of chapter five dealing with the coming forth of the Book of Mormon in Enoch's triangular gold plate, which I would love to discuss another time. So if we can go to the slide two, we this can. Deals where we're gonna talk about uh, Hiram's membership in the Mount Moriah Lodge. And this will uh, be an example of uh, why it seems frustrating to me dealing with their responses. And Cheryl said, Dan talked quite at length about we don't really know if Hiram was the Hiram that was in the Mount Moriah Lodge. Well, it's pretty certain that Hiram was the Hiram because he later in Nauvoo, in the Nauvoo Lodge, declares his membership. Okay? So 
uh, show slide three. Here we have uh, two screenshots. The first one's me on November 13th, and the bottom one is Cheryl talking uh, on the 27th of November, a couple of weeks later. She then quotes the Nauvoo Masonic Lodge minutes you can see on the bottom. Mm -hmm. So what's your quote from up on the top one, Dan? The same record. Oh, okay. All right. I'm just making sure. Okay. So she puts out the Masonic Lodge record as if I never showed it, which I did. You can see oh, by I the see. screenshot. Um, so she quotes the Nauvoo Masonic Lodge minutes where it mentions Hiram's membership in the Mount Moriah or the Palmyra Lodge. Uh, on the bottom there is Cheryl. The very same minutes I had quoted during my last visit here on the top. I have to wonder how carefully she listened because I have never disputed Hiram's membership in the Mount Moriah Lodge. And I have repeatedly corrected her on this. What I have done is to question whether or not the Hiram listed in the 1827-28 record is our Hiram because there was another Hiram living in Manchester at the time which I demonstrated. Just because Hiram joined in the early 1820s during a gap in the records does not mean that the Hiram listed in 1827-28 record is our Hiram. When I was here last, I took great pains to show new research that I have done because of these discussions that tended to favor our Hiram, though not definitively, research the authors should have done themselves. Yet, it doesn't seem they heard this information. Next slide. As I explained, you can see on the bottom there, here's what I showed, this, my breakdown. We have nine years of records, basically, uh, showing uh, the type of record and the comment you can see two blank spaces on lines one and three. Mm -hmm. And then on line um, eight, there's eight. A, a Hiram right. listed. No Hiram on the other years, just Hiram on 1827-28 record. And my comment was at this time, my last, this is uh, November 13th. We have this record in the Nauvoo Minutes, so we know he belonged to the Palmyra Lodge. I mean, there's no question, really, that he he's in there somewhere in one of those two blank slots. But is the Hiram in line eight our Hiram, or is it the other Hiram I mentioned last time? So if we go to the next slide, this is what I said the last time. The week before, when Cheryl had a, a response, you can see at the bottom there, Cheryl, Cheryl says, Hiram Smith's membership is not in question at all. This is the 30th of October. And then I, met, I answered her right there on the show and said, you're missing my point, Cheryl. I'm not questioning Hiram's membership. I know he was a member of the Mount Moriah Lodge. And he joined in the early 1820s. 
but the Hiram mentioned in the 1827-28 record is not necessarily the same Hiram. Nick, who admits he doesn't always listen, then makes a wild argument that is nowhere near what I said. If you will show the next slide. This is Nick, and he says, Dan, in the podcast, basically tried to say that we could not reliably say that Hiram Smith was the Hiram in the Mount Moriah Lodge. And given what we have in the Nauvoo Lodge records, that would involve a conspiracy in which Hiram Smith somehow knew that there had been a Hiram Smith in Mount Moriah Lodge at some point. It would be to show up on the records and now is when to lie and say, well, I'm that Hiram. I can't quite imagine what the point of that would be, especially when you look at the fact that Hiram right away was taking on important ritual roles in the lodge, which showed the fact that he was the ex uh, experienced Freemason. Yeah, we're pretty sure about Hiram's membership in the Palmyra Lodge. Is that a bizarre argument or what? I mean, wow. Yeah, Nick, I'm just as sure Hiram was a member of the Mount Moriah Lodge as you. And you would have known that if you would have maybe listened a little more carefully or at all to what I actually said and showed on the screen on my previous visits. The only difference between our views is that I don't assume Hiram Smith listed in the 1827-28 record was our Hiram. Okay, a brief little statement now I have on the spelling of Hiram's name, which they also brought up. Now, briefly, not, not yet. <laughs> now, briefly, on the spelling of Hiram's name, Cheryl and Nick went on and on about how the name Hiram could be spelt in different ways and that the 19th century spelling was very fluid, which is, I think we all know that. Although Hiram Abiff is spelt very consistently. They failed once again to engage my observation that our Hiram Smith seems to have changed the spelling of his name in 1829, which has nothing to do with all the other Hirams in the United States or how other Hirams may have spelt his or other people may have spelt his name. It's only an observation. Others have observed this as well. I didn't invent it. Um, it may indicate that he was affected by the Book of Mormon's anti-Masonic rhetoric. That's all. It's just a suggestion. I haven't written it or published it anywhere. Okay, the next slide. Something else they brought up and generally talking about the Smith family, which they try to inflate the Smith family Masonic involvement. And I'm more conservative with the records, always have been. Uh, and... Mm -hmm. I won't rehash the evidence or lack of it for Joseph Smith Sr.'s membership in the Canandaigua Lodge. Some people want to say that he was probably a member, but a one in nine chance that the Joseph Smith listed in the 1817-18 minutes is our Joseph Smith Sr. is not good odds and does not justify the use of probably. And I think that shows their bias. I want... I went over their arguments 
for why they think it was R. Joseph Smith Sr. and showed that they lacked substance or were completely wrong, like Joseph Smith Sr. needing the approval of two lodges. No mention of that in their rebuttal. Next slide. Oh, the one before. Yeah, that's it. Smith family, basically. Oh, sorry. We were already there, weren't we? Um, yeah, it's all good. Okay. So I'm just, Cheryl, I'm just hoping uh, I didn't miss a slide. I don't think I did. So. <laughs> uh, Cheryl uh, says, Dan went on and on about his uh, Hiram's lap desk. Oh, you can't fit the Book of Mormon in the lap uh, desk and went on into other people's arguments about the lap desk, which had nothing to do with what we were arguing. So he made it sound like we were saying things that we weren't. Cheryl didn't understand why I brought up the plagues. They had cited Smith family tradition that the box contained Alvin's architectural tools which led them to speculate that the tools were actually Masonic implements. I argued that besides being wild speculation, it is based on family tradition that is unreliable because the same tradition claims that the plates were also in the box at one time, and that tradition seems to be wrong. So they are building their speculation on unreliable family tradition, which they are trying to correct in a way that adds evidence to their contention that the Smith family were deeply into masonry. This is what I did say that on the 23rd of October, I had said, and they must have missed this, Eldred G. Smith, not only did he say that it once held the plates, which was he was wrong about, but he also said that it contained Alvin's architectural tools. So that's why I brought up the the plates being in the same box. Okay, so are they did the is the family tradition that not only did that box contain the plates, but the architectural tools all together, and it just wouldn't have had the room. Is that's what you're showing? No, I'm no. saying that uh, we're relying on family tradition, which isn't, isn't which is, reliable. Okay, I see. And then you're taking that family tradition and speculating on that. So okay. not only is it like wild speculation to begin with, uh, you're, you're basing it on some kind of family tradition that is, has been proved to be wrong in other parts of this box story about this box. So if, the, if Eldred G. Smith was wrong about the plates being in that box, how are you going to build an argument based on he also saying that they one time, at one time contained architectural tools? Okay. They could, yeah. both, be, they could both be wrong. And so how can you build a speculation that they were actually Masonic tools? You know, I see. Okay. All right. Start, yeah. Okay. So show the next slide. And this is uh, for the family tradition. Okay. Yeah. So on yeah. the right, on the left, we have architectural tools in a box, not that box, but 
a box, somebody selling it on eBay or wherever I got that from. There's a bunch of pictures, but I chose that one. Those are mm -hmm. what architectural tools look like. Over on the right, you have Masonic Lodge working tools. They're, they're completely different. They're bigger and clumsier and nothing like architectural tools. So all the way around, I don't think this is a, it should have been put in the book. It's not worth it. Okay, next uh, slide, we'll talk about the faculty of Abrek, which they quote me as saying, Masons didn't use the faculty of Abrek. That is, obviously, in their ceremonies. You know, the, it's not in the lodge. It's no part of what they do. Masons aren't going around trying to uh, uh, seek the faculty or win the faculty of Abrek. Um, so Nick showed that Oliver, George Oliver, that is, the, in his 1823 book, uh, The Antiquities of Freemasonry, uh, Oliver included the triangular uh, shaped uh, Abrek amulet in his book on page 123 of that book. So you can see in the screenshot there on the very bottom is Nick holding up the book to the camera showing well, in Oliver's book, there you have it, the faculty of Abrick. That confounds Dan's argument. Well, really? Um, over on the right, I put a clearer picture so you can see the bottom row right. is, says yeah, Abracadabra. Uh -huh. and, and seven rows up, it says Abrick. Okay, so that's in the footnote. But Nick also admitted that Oliver used it in a pagan context in this footnote. Um, in fact, Oliver was using it as an example of spurious masonry. So why show it, Nick, and laugh as if you presented something meaningful? How does this respond to my observation that the masons didn't use the faculty of Abrek in their rites? Obviously. More importantly, how does this respond to my arguments based on the research of Claire Barris and Samuel Brown that demonstrated that Lucy Smith's 1845 use of the phrase faculty of Abrek didn't prove that the Smith family mixed masonry with their money digging in the 1820s? Nick also mentioned the two, two late 19th century authors who were trying to come to terms with the forged Leland manuscript by associating Abrick with the lost word, which isn't relevant to our discussion of what the Smiths believed in the 1820s. The use of the faculty of Abrick in their book was based on sloppy and incomplete research, and their response to my critique is disappointing. So my critique was that the even though the Masons uh, used that phrase, faculty of Abrick, the anti-Masons also used it, okay? Uh, yes. to, to utilizing it then. To criticize the Masons. Um, and it was a general, it became a general in the gen general vernacular for, for magic. And Lucy in that statement was being sarcastic because she also says we we weren't drawing magic circles, winning the faculty of Abrek and 
uh, soothsaying. Well, soothsaying, no, Lucy wouldn't use soothsaying. Uh, she was being sarcastic. She was using put. She was using words that her critics would use. Anyway, the next slide uh, deals with the uh, Masonic legend of Aaron's rod. Does it prove masonry included elements of magic? So Nick was uh, happy to talk about uh, magic and masonry. And when asked to comment on Masonry's connection to magic and money digging, Nick was eager and laughed confidently, stating, early on, you have George Oliver getting into these magical practices. Nick then related Oliver's account of Adam taking a branch or staff from the Garden of Eden, which gets handed down and becomes Aaron's rod that budded. This is evidence of a connection between masonry and magic. This is the first thing he thinks of. All this proves is that masonry was influenced by the Bible, which we all know. Perhaps Nick was thinking of Cowdery's rod being called the gift of Aaron, but that was an 1835 revision to conceal the folk magic origins of Cowdery's gift with the sprout. Nick, you are going to have to do better than this. Even if masonry had strong magical influences, why would Joseph Smith need to learn about ceremonial magic from the masons if he could find it when he had Walters the Magician and access to actual occult magic books like Barrett's Magus and Silby's Occult Sciences, which Quinn demonstrated years ago. Nick then mentioned Joseph Smith Sr.'s supposed connection with the Vermont Woodscrape group of American Israelites. I know Dan criticized our suggestion the Woodscrape had Masonic connections, but again, it is these gifts of working with the rod, staff, the rod, the wand. These are all synonymous terms in these centuries. True, the Woodscrape group used divining rods to treasure dig and divine the supposed Israelite ancestry of its members, but that isn't Masonic. They called it St. John's Rod. Remember Alan Taylor, I quoted Alan Taylor in saying that uh, there was this uh, stipulation uh, over in Europe about cutting uh, rods on St. John's Day was supposed to be a good day for cutting these rods. Mm -hmm. Um, so they called it St. John's Rod, these uh, woods, the wood, uh, Nathaniel Woods group, um, not the Rod of Aaron. Okay, so this is completely different. So uh, next slide, we'll talk about the this wood scrape. Uh, there it, it is. It occurred in 1799 to 1802 in Middletown, Vermont, which had nothing to do with the Smiths. Was this American Israelite group also Masonic? Cheryl on the wood scrape says, uh, they believe they were descendants of ancient Jews. They believed in divining rods. They spoke about temples, digging for gold treasure, Masonic millennialism, no such thing. St. John, restoration of all things, 
So many things have Masonic connections. None of these things are unexpected for an American Israelite group except treasure digging and divining rods, two elements that arguably aren't Masonic. The three sojourners who discovered Enoch's plate in the Royal Arch degree weren't treasure diggers and didn't use a rod to either locate the underground vault or establish their Israelite heritage. Neither Nick nor Cheryl responded to my analysis of the wood scrape, which I won't rehearse here. You can go watch the video. Cheryl merely reiterated their interpretation and listed what they thought were Masonic parallels, which aren't. There is no evidence that the wood scrape group were Masons, none. No one said it at the time or since. There's nothing uniquely Masonic. So there, that's that. And then so the next one, and Nick says, he, you can see the screenshot here. Nick is showing uh, this Enoch in, uh, signet, I would call it a signet, because that's what the ceremony calls it for uh, the York Rite anyway. Right. Nick, Nick implies that Oliver was using, uh, okay, Nick says, George Oliver, he uses this symbol with regard to Freemasonry. Any ceremonial magician can tell you this is a magic circle for the purpose of conjuring spirits. Nick implies that Oliver was using this circle to conjure spirits. That's not the case. Carrie asked if it was an Enochian triangle in the center, and Nick said it was, but not to confuse it with Enochian magic. This circle and triangle with the tetragrammaton uh, in the center appears in Oliver's discussion of the ineffable name of God among various nations. It's not a magic circle for conjuring spirits. Okay, so now we get to the next slide. Next slide. What is a meta narrative? Meta narrative. Here we go. Yeah. We're going to go again. Yeah. Meta narrative. Well, Cheryl showed that she knew what a meta narrative is, but not why it could be bad. An overarching account, this is the definition she gives or interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern or structure for people's beliefs and gives meaning to their experiences. And not really something a, a historian's supposed to be doing. By the way, in Nick's comment that my pious fraud thesis is a meta-narrative is only true if you use a very loose definition. In that case, everything was that, was that the one narrative. He, was that the one he was talking about with your uh, yeah. Joseph Smith? Oh, okay, yeah, my, he my biography. I just want to make sure I pulled my biography up and said, "Oh, pious fraud is a meta, a meta narrative, also," which would be an argument at hominem circumstantial, which is, you know, oh, I can't criticize them. How dare I criticize them if I'm doing it too? So. Uh, but besides that, well, I, I got the impression Nick was just trying to show that the history books 
can still be valid, even though they have a meta narrative. I didn't take that as a negative as such. Did you take it negative? No, I took it as well. So here's Dan does it too. So if Dan does it too, but then we're, it's okay for us to do it. Don't a lot of historians do that though? No, nineteenth no. century historians. They okay. will have a meta narrative. I'll tell you what a meta narrative is in a moment. All right, you'll Sorry, see how clear, how clearly what a meta narrative is. Just historians don't—they um, can defend theses, okay, um, but they have an overarching story that goes from beginning to the beginning of someone's life to the very end. Um, is um, a meta narrative that. You don't really want to get yourself trapped into interpreting everything around that one theme because nobody's life follows what this one theme. Um, and I know they say, well, we include other things, but I'll be dealing with that uh, little thing uh, in a second here, too. All right. So, a pious fraud is a theory for why Joseph Smith wrote the Book of Mormon, an explanation of motive that may or may not apply in subsequent situations. It's hardly a grand narrative. It's not even a narrative. In my book, I did not overwork my thesis, and my book is not organized around pious fraud. That's the point. But 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 it is organized. But however, I'm going to do a little pushback here. Go ahead. Um, it is focused on the entire book being Joseph Smith's projecting himself into the story, though. It's more about Joseph Smith than an ancient record. Not everything. Uh, it's Joseph Smith uh, writing it, so it, everything in it is his. Okay, It's coming from him, his mind, his experiences. So the, everybody's stuck with that. But an apologist would say that is a meta-narrative because it's not Joseph Smith. It's ancient historical records. I'm just, I'm trying to put an apology. Well, they're, they're allowed to question the thesis. But if you're a naturalist and you believe that Joseph Smith, naturalism might be a, a, a meta narrative in a way. But um, if your thesis says Joseph Smith wrote it instead of translated it, okay, then you're pretty stuck okay. with it. Joseph Smith wrote everything. But the pious fraud uh, isn't. It only explains motive for doing it. It doesn't explain everything about the book, and in, and it doesn't oh, explain I, everything I about his life. I see what you're. I see where you're coming. I just wanted to clarify yeah. that. I, I'm with you. So I'm not connecting everything in an overarching story of some kind. Um. So. Well, uh, in a way. Okay. Yeah. 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 I'm okay. with you. So I go to that. the next. Go to the next slide. Sure. Yep. We'll yep. just. What, what is? Okay, I think I've showed this before, oh, but sorry, we'll, we'll this. we're looking more, we're looking for um, back to Cheryl's definition. Uh, is it the historian's job to give meaning to people's experiences? That's not what historians do. This definition fits religion. That's what religion does. It fits novels. A novel can do that. Okay. Right. Um, to give meaning to people's lives. Um, it's too 
the definition is too general and doesn't capture the kind of meta narrative that is easily identifiable and obviously problematic when used in historical writing. And that's why historians don't write like 19th century historians, you know, um, today, anyway. So it's a satisfying, coherent, grand story. This is a meta narrative. Satisfying, right. coherent story. An overarching account or interpretation of events and circumstances that provides a pattern of struct or structure that gives meaning to otherwise unrelated events, meaning you, you shape the little stories to fit the larger story, you know. Um, uh, an overarching story, storyline that gives context, meaning, and purpose to Joseph Smith's life. What would a meta-narrative of Joseph Smith's life look like uh, besides this one here that we're talking about? Uh, an example, from birth, Joseph Smith was chosen by God to restore the true church, and Satan tried to stop him. I've never okay. heard that before. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Okay. Uh, this meta narrative was used by Lucy Smith or her collaborator, Martha Corey, to interpret all the misfortunes experienced by the Smith family as satanic and the good things as blessings from God. As I said in my previous appearances, historians are wary of these meta-narratives because they have a tendency to distort the smaller stories in the service of a larger story. This is what we find in meta-narrative, I mean, in, <laughs> in method infinite. Everything has become Masonic. You have heard the saying, someone with a hammer sees everything as a nail. Well, that's what we have here a very distorted view of early Mormon history that I feel needs correction or at least modification. Next slide. Meta-narrative in Method Infinite. So what does that look like in this book? Uh, Joseph Smith's master plan. Not content to describe possible influences of masonry on Joseph Smith's thought. The author sees Joseph Smith as having a master plan from the beginning to restore masonry. Let's look at places where this ex is explicitly expressed in the book. The so on page 31 says, the Masonic timing and prophetic nature of Joseph Jr.'s birth may have led his family to believe him to be the fulfillment of a legendary Masonic restorer who would aid in their search for the lost word. So the Smith family, when Joseph was born, you know, December 23rd, 1805, the family already knows all about masonry to the point where they are, they're already looking for the lost word. And they think Joseph Smith's going to do this at his birth. I mean, this is what I'm talking about. Historians don't write like this. This is, this is not a, a sentence as a historian would write, okay? Quoting Reese Durham um, approvingly in the introduction, aspects of Masonic legend seem transformed into the history of Joseph Smith, so much so that it appears to be a kind of symbolic acting out of Masonic lore. Quoting Jack Adamson 
again, approvingly, symbol is not merely transformed into Joseph Smith's inner history, but goes beyond metaphor, and the symbol merges into tragic reality with his death. Again, this is mostly in the introduction. Masonry would thus influence the Mormon restoration from Vermont to New York, Ohio, Missouri, and Illinois. Again, this Masonic technique of Midrash affected the way Smith explained his own experiences in restoring true Masonry from his first vision to his presidential campaign. On pages 11 to 12, the fact that the continued relevance of Christian Freemasonry was debated by Masons may be one reason Joseph Smith saw the need for its restoration, and he would make it his life's work to recover what he considered lost and missing aspects of religion and Freemasonry in order to restore them to a prominent place in the lives of his associates. This means that meta, method, this means that method infinite is thesis driven. The entire book is organized around this theme, this meta narrative. Nick complains that my critique is mostly negative. Well, this is why. This aspect of the book is why. Um, so my next slide. Did Joseph Smith plan to restore masonry in the 1820s. So uh, Cheryl and Nick made no mention of my discussion of the original wording of DNC 5, a revelation given during Martin Harris's visit to Harmony, Pennsylvania in March 1829. I didn't expect them to mention everything, of course, which I can't either, but this was a major piece of evidence against their theory. So we see here, uh, we got the, the first verse we're going to look at says, uh, he has a gift to translate the book. And I have commanded him that he should pretend to no other gift, for I will grant him no other gift. Now, this is a, this limits Joseph Smith's view of what his mission is right here. This is a limiting factor. Well, that, for the Book of Mormon to translate it. Yeah, that's his gift. That's that's his gift. He's to pretend to no other gift. Well, so it's so limiting that it had to be changed in the next edition in 1835, the Doctrine of Covenants. Uh, changed the key part to, and this is the first gift that I bestowed upon you, and that he should, he should pretend to no other gift until the Book of Mormon's finished. So there's a, there's a uh, an awareness of that the original wording limited his mission. Okay, in the next slide, we have another verse from the same Revelation. These are all the changes you can see marked up in, in my uh, copy of the Book of Commandments. Um, you write in the scriptures? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> You're as bad as I am, Vogel. That's so, awesome. This passage says, and it was de totally deleted in the next uh, and replaced in the next 
uh, edition. If the people of this generation harden not their hearts, I will work a reformation among them. And I will put down all lyings, deceivings, and priestcrafts, envyings, and strifes, and idolatry, sorceries, all manner of iniquities. And I will establish my church like unto the church which was taught by my disciples in days of old. So the Book of Mormon was going to work a reformation. I mean, that's all he was going to put out was this book. He couldn't see beyond this book. <laughs> you know, and um, it was... It was going to put down all the false doctrine. It was going to correct all the false doctrine, this book. And that's all that needed to be done because it would work a reformation among the churches. He was confident of that. Well, that was deleted in 1835. By 1835, the whole thing had changed. And uh, it was reworked. Uh, it was actually a whole thing, new thing written and inserted in its place. It uh, says that the Book of Mormon would be the beginning you know, of the rising up and coming forth of my church out of the wilderness. So the church is gone. It's not going to be reformed. You know, it's gone and then it's going to come and it's a new church. And all the other churches are, who cares about them? Because this is the, the true, one and only true church. So this was in March 1829 before Cowdery arrived to begin as scribe. This concept of founding a church did, didn't come until the end of translation. So see Brent Metcalf's Priority of Mosiah in his book, uh, New Approaches to the Book of Mormon, shows right. how as he's translating, he doesn't even know Jesus is going to come um, until into the book. And that the actual administration of church, you know, and the, the uh, ordinances and things like that can't come at the end of his dictation. So if... Apparently, Joseph Smith did not have a mission to found a church prior to 1829, let alone restore masonry. So this was a, a key, a serious blow to their meta-narrative, and they chose to not respond to it so far. So in the, I guess we'll just move on to the next slide. Okay. What is a, apologetics? Okay, what is apologetics? We all know what apologetics is. As Cheryl just, says, Dan. Just say the word fair. I helped, <laughs> I helped that mess. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> um, Cheryl says, Dan also then compares people who make these meta narratives to apologists. Well, that's not what I said. I didn't say only apologists make meta narratives. I said that the impulse to harmonize Joseph Smith's earlier teachings with his later teachings so that they're all, you know, Joseph Smith didn't change kind of a thing because he had a revelation. He can't change uh, to, his, to harmonize his earlier teachings with his later teachings was apologetic. That's what apologists try to do. Uh -huh. uh, and that historians are comfortable with contradiction and even exploit the contradiction because we like to see the incremental uh, unfolding of things, you know, and we, we pay attention to chronology, you know. This is important because if the Book of Mormon is anti-Masonic, he can't be the great restorer of masonry from the beginning. The only reason to question the Book of Mormon as anti-Masonic 
is to remove an apparent contradiction in Joseph Smith's teachings. It is the justification they give for nuancing the Book of Mormon and other texts, which led me to introduce the idealist fallacy, which they also never mentioned. Next slide. So the idealist fallacy, as my listeners might recall, is a presumption of logical consistency, is as unjustified as a presumption of the opposite. So if you say, oh, uh, we, uh, Joseph Smith couldn't contradict himself. Therefore, we have to find a way of not him not contradicting himself. That is the idealist fellas. That's one type. There's like four or five different ways of violating this idealist fallacy and it's really based on the ideal what is right, the ideal human being you know uh wouldn't contradict themselves mm -hmm. um the authors are motivated to harmonize the book of mormon's apparent anti-masonic anti-masonry with joseph smith's later teachings because it stands in the way of their meta-narrative that joseph smith from the beginning was pro-Mason, with a mission to purify and restore Masonry. However, Smith subsequently changed his mind on Book of Mormon doctrines dealing with the nature of the Godhead and the duration of hell and punishment, for example. So he's, he contradicts himself. So once again, they show that they have not understood my comments about meta-narrative and why historians generally are wary of them and that their meta-narrative is on extremely shaky ground, they show no awareness of how the idealist fallacy affects their meta-narrative and missed entirely my point about apologetics. So next slide. Is the Book of Mormon, okay. Is the Book of Mormon pro or anti-Masonic? Was there a question in Joseph Smith's day about whether the Book of Mormon was Masonic or anti-Masonic? Well, Cheryl tries to argue that there is disagreement among the people of the day whether the Book of Mormon is Masonic or anti-Masonic. That's what she said on your show. This right. is totally incorrect. For those like myself and Brent Medcalf, who have collected statements about the Book of Mormon and Masonry for decades, this is shockingly misinformed. Cheryl, on this show... And in the book on pages 119 to 20, tries to provide evidence for her assertion from an 1831 statement by E.D. Howe, which she misunderstands and fails to give proper context. So she quotes it right there. Right. And it's quoted from the Painesville Telegraph, the 22nd of March, 1831, when the Mormons were just moving into Kirtland, Ohio. You appear, and this is the quote, you appear not to be aware of some zealous Masons and several Republican Jacks have beset Joe Smith for more light. And more light, we all know what that means. And perhaps you have yet to learn that the Mormon Bible was printed and set forth to the world from a Masonic printing office under a Masonic or some other injunction of secrecy. You may also discover a very striking resemblance between Masonry and Mormonism. 
Note that Hal isn't saying anything about the Book of Mormon's content. Everything he says is external to the Book of Mormon. Hal made this statement before he read the Book of Mormon. And Cheryl should have known that he reversed his opinion in his 1834 book. Next slide. Yeah, E.D. Howe says, in Mormonism Unveiled, the Nephites are represented as being anti-Masons, which carries with it some evidence that the writer foresaw the politics of New York in 1828 and 29. Howe was an anti-Mason himself. He was an anti-Mason and an anti-Jackson. He didn't want the Book of Mormon to be anti-Masonic, but upon learning more about its content, he was forced to join Alexander Campbell in assessing the Book of Mormon as anti-Masonic. There was no confusion in the 19th century about the Book of Mormon's being anti-Masonic. It is, in fact, the interpretive consensus of everyone who commented on the subject. If you need more examples of Joseph Smith's contemporaries declaring the Book of Mormon is anti-Masonic, including Martin Harris, watch my first video on the topic on my channel on YouTube. Next slide. Uh, is the Book of Mormon anti-spurious masonry? Uh, making, or, or making George Oliver say what you want, but still not agree with Joseph Smith. So Cheryl followed her incorrect assertion that the Book of Mormon was seen by some in Joseph Smith's day as pro-Masonic with a speculation that Joseph Smith intended the Book of Mormon to be read as anti-spurious masonry based on the writings of George Oliver. Cheryl says here, Dan said that George Oliver did not mean that spurious masons were apostate 19th century masons. And that's true. We agree with that. We agree that George Oliver did not mean that. However, Joseph Smith was interpreting George Oliver this way. Uh, how do they know that? Huh? So we are not dealing with George Oliver here. <laughs> we are not dealing with George Oliver here, but rather a unique interpretation of the Oliver that these Oliver that these authors invented and then imposed on the Book of Mormon and imputed to Joseph Smith. And not just Joseph Smith, but everyone in the 19th century, forgetting that the interpretive consensus in the 19th century was that the Book of Mormon was anti-Masonic, which included Mormons like Martin Harris, Ebenezer Robinson, and James C. Brewster. The authors explain in their conclusion, and this is, uh, next slide, this is on page 447 towards the end of their book. I think it's in the conclusion, actually. Following the loss of knowledge of important Masonic concepts after Joseph Smith's death, Book of Mormon scriptural passages lost the underlying contrast, or it's unspoken, actually, contrast between spurious and authentic masonry and were read as carte blanche criticism of secret combinations like masonry yet our authors so everyone in the were the, or many i guess in the 19th century read the book of mormon the way they do yet 
Our, our authors can't find a single quote to demonstrate their assumption about how the Book of Mormon was read, either by Joseph Smith or any of his followers. And they persist in this view despite evidence to the contrary. So removing the, the contradiction between the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's later teachings is not a simple matter of appealing to the writings of George Oliver and his use of the term spurious masonry. There simply is no underlying contrast between spurious and authentic masonry in the Book of Mormon, and no evidence that Joseph Smith and early readers supplied that context. Next slide. Cheryl says, some of the, some of the Masonic writings of the day have pure masonry and spurious masonry. The Book of Mormon shows both these. The apostate forms of masonry and then Nephi building a temple after the manner of Solomon, metalworking smiths, the brother of Jared, referring to melting rocks. Right. They show all kinds of figures that can be said to be Masonic in this true or pure way. So the Book of Mormon shows Joseph's vision of how masonry can be either a good thing or it can be apostate. Next slide. Cheryl's remark is apparently derived from the following statement in Method Infinite. Rather than being merely anti-Masonic, the Book of Mormon presents a comprehensive view of two rival groups, the authentic Masons and spurious Masons. Nephites, the followers and descendants of the founding prophet Je uh, Lehi and his son Nephi correspond with authentic Masons, as described by Masonic writer George Oliver. They descend from a patriarchal line, connect to Adam, Enoch, Noah, Abraham, and Moses, and they possess skills of metalworking, woodcraft, shipbuilding, and so on. In a symbolic act of true religion, they mark their arrival in their, their promised land, by building a Solomonic temple in the Masonic tradition. That's page 118 in Method Infinite. I'll get into their evidence, if it can be called that, in a moment. But the well, problem that is, is... that is what they did with the temple, though. That is in the Book of Mormon. There's no well, question yeah. that is there. All it right. is in the Book of Mormon. All right. I'll, I'll get, but I'll get to that in a moment. Um, All right. The problem is that Oliver simply assumed that all righteous people were Masons. So in emulating Oliver in their interpretation of the Book of Mormon, there is no way to either confirm or disprove the author's theory, or so it seems. Next slide. So this is Oliver basically saying that uh, he interprets all righteous people as being a Masonic, and uh, whenever you find whenever you find righteous people, you find Masonry. So uh, I'm not going to bother to read that. But the authors mere the authors merely impose a reading of the Book of Mormon that follows or emulates Oliver's isogetic reading of the Old Testament. Eisegesis is the process of interpreting text in such a way as to introduce one's own presuppositions, agendas, or biases. 
It is commonly referred to as reading into the text. This is, uh, that, that's a quote from uh, Wikipedia, by the way. This is what Oliver did, and he was roundly criticized by the scholars and anti-Masons of his day for doing it. The authors of well, Method the, Infinite. The anti-Masons would argue with him. Oh, yeah. Well, just sure. regular scholars criticized George Oliver for just making shit up. Okay. <laughs> and the authors of Method Infinite do the same thing to the Book of Mormon. Um, before I move on, a few words about the author's attempt to bolster their arbitrary interpretation by referring to Lehi and Nephi's patriarchal Melchizedek priesthood, their skills in metalworking, and their ship and temple building as evidence that they were pure masons, as described by George Oliver. Next slide. Go ahead. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah. Okay. There, here. That's yep. it. Oliver didn't limit what he called operative masonry, the ability to use various technologies, like building, shipbuilding, metalworking, mm -hmm. to, to the pure masons. In fact, Oliver recognized that metalworking originated among Cain's posterity, specifically with Tubal Cain as mentioned in Genesis 4.22. All of our spurious masons were the great builders of Babylon, Egypt, Greece, and Rome. Even uh, oh, it makes you wish some Even tire. Even tire. Right? It makes you wish the spurious masons would get back here to America because our buildings are boring compared to those fabulous things. So, you know, we've well, lost the modern... Yeah, our modern, mod modernism is some uh, old gray barrack boxes. They're in, they're in a hurry. Um, know, right? All about the damn money. <sighs> so, next slide. Okay. All right. I think there is a better way to look at these things. Metallurgy, shipbuilding, and temples would be expected to be mentioned in a history of the mound builders, which undeniably provided the historical framework for the Book of Mormon. The mound builders were said to be metal workers because it was believed that metal tools were necessary to build the mounds in, in North America and the cities and temples in Central and South America. Claims of finding metal objects in the mounds, such as copper plates the, and iron and steel swords even, was proof that they're of their high civilization. Many in Just Smith's day believed the New World was repeopled after the flood through transoceanic crossings, not just Joseph Smith. Next slide. The Book of Mormon's reflection of the popular 10 tribe theory guaranteed that it would compare the temples of Central and South America to Solomon's temple. English clergyman Thomas Thorogood and American missionary John Eliot believed that the pure the Peruvians, excuse me, had their temples and priests, and they their cham chambers there, much after the manner which Solomon built. According to Antoine Simon Lepage du Prats, author of the history of Louisiana, 1774, the Indians of Louisiana built their temples on mounds and constructed them like the Jews with two compartments. 
Next slide. Ethan Smith, in his 1825 second edition of View of the Hebrews, compared Native American culture to the Jews, specifically the Ten Tribes. Speaking of the Aborigines of this continent, he said, you find them with their temples, such as they be, their holy of holies in their temple, into which it is utterly prohibited for a common person to enter. They have their high priests, who officiate in their temples and make their yearly atonement there in a singular pontifical dress, which they fancy to be in the likeness of one worn by their predecessors in ancient times with their breastplate and various holy ornaments. Next slide. So you can see uh, th there's no way Joseph could uh, not explain these temples, and I'll get into why that is. Um, associating the temples of the New World with the Ten Tribes raises the question of authority, since the tribe of Levi officiated over Solomon's temple right. in the southern kingdom of Judah. Ethan Smith mentioned that the Indians had one tribe answering in various respects to the tribe of Levi, and speculated that some of this tribe probably remained with the ten tribes. Lehi came from Jerusalem, but he wasn't a Levite. So how did Joseph Smith solve this problem? He was especially motivated to do so because he had a plan to establish the new Jerusalem, or Zion, and to build its temple in fulfillment of Book of Mormon and Bible prophecy. Neither Joseph Smith nor the Lehites could be legal holders of the Aaronic or Levitical priesthood. So Joseph Smith had Lehites build a temple and operate it through the high priesthood after the order of the Son of God, as explained in Alma 13, which is a midrash of Hebrews chapter 7, which describes Jesus, who was of the tribe of Judah, as the high priest after the order of Melchizedek. That author had to explain how Jesus could be a high priest and wasn't a Levite too. So mm -hmm. it fits. Alma 13 invites a, a, or excuse me, Alma 13 invents a line of high priests that existed before and after Melchizedek, which is not mentioned in the Old Testament. Even before Joseph Smith's time, Jewish and Christian scholars struggled to explain how the patriarchs could build altars and offer sacrifice before Moses instituted the priesthood. They speculated that the patriarchs had some kind of authority and referred to Melchizedek as being the priest of the Most High God, to whom Abraham paid tithes, mentioned in Genesis 14. Midrash Rabbah, a rabbinic commentary on the five books of Moses and a few other books, dating to at least the 5th century CE, explained that Melchizedek had handed his authority down to Abraham and that Rabbi Ishmael holds that Abraham was a high priest. This was based on an unlikely reading of Psalms 110 verse 4. Yeah. The Lord had sworn yeah. and will not repent. Thou art a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Yeah which uh, uh, is, is quoted in Masonic ceremonies. It is, yeah. yeah. 
Christian commentators in, interpreted this passage as a reference to Christ's priesthood. Jesus, yeah. Hebrews took that up too. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas uh, Christian commentators interpreted, I mean, I mean, whereas rabbis, <laughs> rabbis right. naturally interpreted this as a reference to Abraham receiving the priesthood from Melchizedek. Right. They switched it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well the Hebrew is, Jesus explanation. Yeah, the Hebrew isn't clear on that anyway. The pronouns yeah. you can mix them either way. So yeah. right. Yeah. Well, and the Christians are just interpolating it anyway. Um, related they to do, this, they do that all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> kind of like Joseph Smith in some regards. Hmm. Who would have yeah, thought? You're right. <laughs> um, related to this is the notion that Catholic priests literally hold. Christ's priesthood through a chain of ordinations, while many Protestants claim access to Christ's authority through faith. Prior to the introduction of angelic ordination by Joseph Smith and Oliver Cowdery in the mid-1830s, Joseph Smith claimed it through direct revelation, through divine command. So the command was the authority. Like Protestants believe they have the authority to baptize because the Jesus in the Bible commands Christians to baptize in his name. So that's the authority yeah, out of the book. And mm -hmm. for Joseph Smith, it wasn't good enough. You had to have a direct revelation from God giving you the command to baptize. And that's the authority. He didn't, he didn't claim any angels had ordained him until mid 1830s. Um, and the high priesthood was He's introduced to sound in like Grant Underwood, or not Underwood. Um, who was the CES director? Uh, Jeremy Reynolds, are you trying to? No, no, the uh, the gentleman who was in CES for decades, and they, he just recently died. I can't remember his last name. I'm my brain's rusty. Grant Palmer. Yeah, Grant Palmer. Yeah, yeah. Um, he talks about authority, talks about this, yes. He sure does, yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, and I have uh, a couple of uh, videos dealing with this topic also. And yeah, and they're good on, videos. I appreciate it. an article on it in, in the Journal of John Whitmer Historical Association. Historical Society. Uh, and the high priesthood among the Mormons was introduced at a June 1831 conference in Kirtland. So the next slide. Um, there we go. Does that look familiar? Um, it, it does. Yeah, it's from Jeremy Cross. Uh, that's the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? Yeah, that's the Royal Arch yes. degree, the Grand Council, the Grand prophet, Council. priest, and king deal that the Method Infant talks about. Um, the authors mention that the Royal Arch Masons have an order of the high priesthood. But despite uh, references to Melchizedek in Genesis and Hebrews and Psalms, uh, this is merely an ironic high priesthood. The high priest is Joshua, who lived during, the, 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 not the original Joshua, but the Joshua who lived during the time of King Zerubbabel and officiated in the restored temple uh, 515 to 490 BCE. He even wears Aaron's breastplate. The problem with the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's early revelations is that 
Melchizedek wasn't a high priest. He was just a priest. Joseph Smith made him into a high priest, and so others also, like the, the Jewish source I quoted. Mm-hmm. Um, in his Midrash to Hebrews 7, which refers to Christ as the great high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And that's kind of how among Christians uh, you get Abraham having the high priesthood and, uh, you know, high priesthood, actually Melchizedek being a high priesthood instead of just a a priest. Um, Mm -hmm. So in conclusion, the, the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon's mention of Melchizedek priesthood metallurgy, ship, and temple building is not compelling evidence that the Nephites were pure and speculative masons and does not justify reading Oliver's pure slash spurious masonry construct into the Book of Mormon's text. All right. So next slide. Okay. Maybe number 33. How to distinguish between anti-Masonry and anti-spurious Masonry in the Book of Mormon. Okay. Let's do it. Next slide. Yeah, there we are. Nick on the origin of spurious Masonry says, George Oliver also goes back to the creation and identifies all the biblical patriarchs as grand masters of Masonry and specifically talks about the apostasy of Cain and goes into this idea of Go ahead. serious Freemasonry. You have to look at George yeah, Oliver. Hold on. Hold on. My story keeps popping up. Damn it. I you don't hear what? It keeps popping up. You say a certain word a certain way, and Siri pops up and says, I'm here. Go ahead. And I think it's goofing up the sound. So. I'm, I'm setting you it were, off. Huh? You were just reading this, right? You weren't saying anything. <laughs> Turn your phone off, man. <laughs> Oh, dude, I wonder if that is the issue. I'll throw the phone over there. I just, I try to keep it close to me in case I get a phone call. Sometimes Radio Free Mormon will call me on purpose to interrupt just to bug me. We have a lot of fun that way with each other, but uh, yeah, no harm, no foul. I love that guy. He's fun. He teases me, I tease him back. We all love Radio Free Mormon, don't we? Yeah, I think so. I think so. They're both a great uh, pair, actually. I I owe a boatload to those. I enjoy both of those guys. Yeah, 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 yeah. I like their show. Definitely. All right. Okay, yeah. Okay, so. So, We'll start. uh, Sorry. Nick says, George Oliver also goes back to the creation and identifies all of the biblical patriarchs as grandmasters of masonry and specifically talks about the apostasy of Cain. And goes into this idea of spurious Freemasonry. You have to look at George Oliver as a legitimate expression of Masonic thought and the understanding of a Masonic legend at the time back to the 1820s that Joseph was working from. Did I read that okay? Anyway, next slide. Yeah, I I got it. It's George Oliver. Yes, sure enough. George Oliver talks about. Cain's apostasy, the principles of speculative masonry, which had been communicated to Adam in paradise, were never by him forsaken after he tasted the bitter fruit of the forbidden tree. When men became numerous upon the earth, the evil spirit of darkness was very busily engaged in the corruption of their morals. 
and succeeded in working up the malevolent passions of the heart of Cain until he apostatized from masonry and slew his brother Abel. So, yes, okay, Nick, Nick is uh, correct on that matter. So, next slide, yes, there we are. How to distinguish between anti-masonry and anti-spurious masonry. So, the first point here is, in the Book of Mormon, the secret signs, words, and oaths are only associated with secret combinations, and always pejoratively, something George Oliver would not have done. Now, you know, if George Oliver wrote the Book of Mormon, <laughs> would he describe spurious masonry using the, the anti-Masonic term secret combinations? And would he ha have talked about their secret words and, uh, and signs and oaths as an identifier of that group when he himself has those same things? No. This, this isn't... This is written from the anti-Masonic point of view, not from a Masonic point of view. A Mason would not have talked this way. The second, the second. Okay, so before I move on to the other one, was let's do a little reminder of what the Book of Mormon says. <clears throat> that Satan did, this is in Helaman's chapter 6, verse 21 and 22. Uh, Behold, Satan did stir up the hearts of the more part of the Nephites, insomuch they did that they did unite with those bands of robbers, and did enter into their covenants and their oaths, that they would protect and preserve one another in whatsoever difficult circumstances they should be placed, that they should not suffer for their murders and their plunderings and their stealings. And it came to pass that they did have their signs, yea, their secret signs and their secret words, and thus that they might distinguish a brother who had entered into the covenant that whatsoever wickedness his brother should do he should not be injured by his brother nor by those who did belong to his band who had taken the covenant so the this is exactly the accusation that anti-masons leveled at masonry i mean mason a mason would not describe spurious masonry <laughs> like this he might, but he might open himself up to the, what the anti-Masons are saying about him, you know, which is, uh, so this is just one example among many, uh, which is, uh, I took from the Proceedings of the United States Anti-Masonic Convention held in Philadelphia in 1830. If, uh, <clears throat> they say, <clears throat> they, the Masons, are sworn if they are royal archmasons, no, you're not. I'm closing you. Oh, hold on, I'm gonna throw this phone. Through. It must be the word mason, huh? <clears throat> I'm telling you, I've never had this happen before. That's crazy. I hope it's not on my computer. Uh, these guys, these guys are laughing at me. Oh, it's classic, you know. Only on. <clears throat> Do you get unique events like this? I'm telling you, we are here for the education and entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, carry on. Okay, carry so on. this uh, this these, this convention uh, talked about the Masons, if they are royal arch Masons, <laughs> to keep each other's secrets, murder and treason not accepted, 
to rescue each other from danger, right or wrong. It's, just so, it's exactly what the Book of Mormon was saying. Henry Dana Ward also said, uh, to protect, protect and preserve another in whatsoever difficult circumstances, uh, they should be, or I mean, sorry. <laughs> the Royal Archmason swears that a companion Royal Archmason secrets given in charge as such, and I, knowing him to be such, shall remain invaluable in my breast as his own when communicated to me, murder and treason not accepted. That's from Henry Dana Ward, 1828, the Anti-Masonic Review and Magazine. Well, so that's, that, that's just the first uh, element. And the second element, back to my slide. Yeah. <coughs> Hey, I just I just want to say something real quick. Yeah, we've got Cheryl Bruno in the house, Doug Vincent in the house. We've got Barry Richens in the house. We have Kobe Townsend in the house. We have Travis Overly in the house. We have Paul Osborne in the house. Anthony in the house. I mean, this is quite the lineup. Tom Miller is here. Uh, Jim Rathbone. I mean, wow. And I'm Kobe not Townsend. Give you guys. Yeah, Kobe Townsend has been here for about an hour talking. So, I mean, this is really fun. Thanks, all you guys, for being here. <clears throat> and, uh, <clears throat> and, and as, far as, say, as far as the idea of debating, <clears throat> we, have, we have talked about debating, but for now, we've, agree, we've all agreed to let uh, Cheryl and Nick on, let them give their presentation, let Dan respond, let them. We haven't had them all together yet. And it's so, a slow motion debate. Don't, don't be, yeah, we're going slow on this, so don't be all uh, mad at us. And then Mosiah, ha, you thought I didn't know what you were doing with your Mosiah name, did you? Yes, I admit, I saw the earlier discussion. <clears throat> Yeah. Anyway, so hey, we appreciate all the uh, yes. House visitors. We appreciate all the visitors. Debbie Joe's here as usual. Love you, girl. You're awesome. I hope you're doing well. So in, anyway, I didn't mean to interrupt you. I'm just saying we've got a. Oh, uh, that's cool. Got a great. Barsky is here. I, <laughs> great. Uh, we got Heather Reddick. Reddick. Sorry to mash your name, Heather. Yikes. <laughs> She's gonna backhand me on that one. Okay, so let's get back to the argy margy. Yes, okay. that's an old word. So here's our. So that was our first element of distinguishing right. between anti-masonry and anti-spurious masonry. The, right. the second element is the term "secret combinations" was used by anti-masons, not George Oliver. George Oliver never used that term. He would never use that term. Why would he use that term? Because the term was an anti-masonic term. It was. It was owned basically by the anti-Masons. Why would he use it for the spurious Masons uh, and confuse everybody? So... To uh, try the to third, show that there were spurious Masons? What's that? To try to show that there were spurious Masons? I don't yeah, know. but to use an anti-Masonic term that is used on himself against his group, why would he use it against... use the oh, same oh, term I, used I, against I his group? Against the... Spurious Masons and and no one and everybody thinks oh he must be talking about himself or you know right. <laughs> why I'm would why you. would a pro Mason use and uh, the term secret combinations 
to describe just a group within masonry or or a group that had the same reason from the same reason mormons call other mormons cultural mormons or liberals <laughs> or whatever i mean that, you know in a way that's i'm not trying to argue i'm just saying i well we all agreed that george point. oliver i see your point I don't George see it Oliver that. didn't use the term spurious masonry for 19th century masons. I see your angle. Okay. I'm just making sure I understand you. Vogel. Okay. So he wouldn't use <laughs> secret combinations either. <laughs> so neither would Joseph Smith. Um, the third item, uh, the Book of Mormon's portrayal of secret combinations is consistent with Joseph Smith's Nauvoo teaching about the apostate condition of masonry. So in Nauvoo, he's saying the, all the Masons are apostate. So how is that different than what the Book of Mormon is saying That's interesting. about secret combinations? Why, why would he be anti-spurious Masonry in the Book of Mormon and then in Nauvoo be totally anti-Masonry? <laughs> you know, like they're all apostate. The whole thing's apostate. Whereas in the Book of Mormon, it's only spurious. So if it, if, if secret combinations refers to spurious masonry and Joseph Smith believes all masonry is spurious, then there's no, it's a distinction without a difference. Mm -hmm. Okay. Interesting angle. So the fourth, fourth term, the last term, yeah, the last good. element, George Oliver traced spurious masonry back to Cain's apostasy from masonry. But the Book of Mormon and Book of Moses and some anti-Masons trace secret combinations back to Cain's compact with Satan. So in that this the latter view, Cain didn't apostatize from Masonry, he invented it. He he began the secret combination. So hmm. Now we're going to see, look at those passages of scripture that I'm alluding to in the next slide. Okay, here we go. So here we go. Yeah. <clears throat> Helaman, chapter 6 again, 26 and 27. Behold, and now behold, those secret oaths and covenants did not come down from un, forth unto Gedeonton from the records which were delivered unto Helaman by Alma. But behold, they were put into the heart of Gedeonton by that same being who did entice our first parents to partake of the forbidden fruit. Yea, that same being who did plot with Cain that if he would murder his brother Abel, it should not be known unto the world. And he did plot with Cain and his followers from that time forth. Then... So you can see it's uh, by revelation, basically, directly to Cain. Um, he's, Cain's not an apostate in the Book of Mormon. He's not an apostate. Um, and in the Book of Moses is even more, more clear because uh, and it's only dictated a few months after the Book of Mormon's publication. Mm-hmm. June to October 1830. And mm -hmm. Satan did said unto Cain, swear unto me by thy throat. I mean, uh -oh. uh, yeah, we're getting close. We're getting very uh -oh. close to being more precise than the Book of Mormon. Huh? And well, this is Moses. 
Yeah. And if thou tell it, thou shalt die and swear thy brethren by their thy, by their heads Ooh. and by the living God that they tell it not. For if they tell it, they shall surely die. And this, that they, thy father may not know it. And this day I will deliver thy brother into thy hand, thine hands. And Satan swore unto Cain that he would do according to his commands. And all these things were done in secret. And Cain said, Truly I am Mahan, the master of this great secret, that I may murder and get gain. Wherefore Cain was called Master Mahan, and he gloried in his wickedness, and Cain gloried in that which he had done, saying, I am free. <laughs> I mean, how more uh, awkward and bumbling can can Joseph Smith be here, you know? <laughs> I mean, hey, that's a vision. That's a vision is, given to him. Yeah. Let's show some respect. <laughs> uh, so um, that's good enough. So, so the Book of Mormon and, and Moses, in the Book of Mormon and Moses, Cain doesn't apostatize from his father's masonry. He received the Masonic-like oaths from Satan himself, Alma had instructed his son Helaman to restrict access to the Jaredite records in order to retain all their oaths and their covenants yeah, and their agreements and their secret abominations, yea, and all their signs and their, their wonders ye shall keep from this people, that they know them not, lest peradventure they should fall into the darkness also and be destroyed. So Gedeantum, like Cain, didn't simply degenerate from pure masonry, assumed to exist in the Nephite temple, as our authors assert, along with apologist Stephen Smoot. He got them directly from Satan. This doesn't fit with what the authors claim on page 118. Just as, and this is a quote, quote, just as the spurious Masons are a re, uh, retrograde movement from original purity, the secret combinations of the Book of Mormon are a corruption of the Nephite priesthood order and act as a modern warning against spurious Masonry and a prefiguration that Smith would overcome the apostate Masonry of his day. Hmm. So it doesn't fit. The Book of Mormon doesn't, after all, after all of their uh, arguing about, you know, inventing uh, spurious masonry, uh, you know, using it in a way that Oliver didn't use, and then right. reading it into the Book of Mormon as a, a silent understanding by Joe Smith and his contemporaries, uh, that can't be proven to exist after all it doesn't fit because <laughs> no. Kane's Kane's not uh, a, an apostate mason he he's made the, the covenant directly with with Satan. Satan he's the first and when you talk about this mayhan master mayhan I am free and all that he's talking about masonry He's disguising it not so well. Um, <clears throat> and he changes, you know, he changes it to Mahan, so it's not exactly uh, like the Masons. Um, so, 
All right. Next slide, 38. Yeah, here we are. Satan and Cain in anti-Masonic rhetoric. Uh, this is Solomon Southwick, 1827. A solemn warning against Freemasonry addressed to the young men of the United States. They, the Masonic authors, must permit me to believe if I take it into my head to be only half so extravagant as they are, that Satan, and not Solomon of Israel, is the legitimate father of the institution, that he laid its foundations when he rebelled in heaven and performed his first labors on earth as grand king or grand high priest when he seduced Eve, and that Cain was duly initiated by him and soon evinced his proficiency by morganizing his brother Abel. So you can see with that morganizing Abel is uh, a clue as to why they're going to Cain, because Cain's the first murderer. And so that must be the origin of masonry, not not with the righteous patriarchs, but but with the murderer Abel, I mean uh, Cain. So mm. they're going there as a myth. Uh, this is rhetoric, of course, yeah. not to be confused with reality. But right. right. Solomon Southwick was, was a newspaper publisher and organizer of the anti-Masonic party in New York who ran unsuccessfully for governor in 1828. This guy just said that. Following the assumed murder of William Morgan in 1826, connecting Masonry with Cain, the first murder, was an obvious rhetorical strategy. Most anti-Masons argued that Masonry had a strictly modern origin and that their claims to antiquity was based on nonsensical fables but a few connected masonry to Satan's temptation of Eve and or Cain's murder of Abel. This was more for rhetorical effect than a sincere belief. If anti-Masonic writers and speakers separated fact from rhetoric, it does not necessarily follow that their audiences did. Associating masonry with Cain was so obvious for some anti-Masons that I think just Smith made the connection on his own, actually. I think that that is indicated by the transparent and clumsy way he handled Cain in the Book of Moses. Next slide. All righty. Other anti -Masons. Now, This guy. Yeah, you know this guy? Peter uh, yeah, I used to go Peter, home teaching with him. The Reverend Peter Sanborn. You used to home teach this guy? No, I used to go home teaching with him. Oh, with him. Yeah, we went over to Dale Morgan and Oliver Cowdery and Joseph, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. You wonder why nobody uh, opened the door. Yeah, but, I'm, I'm, I'm um, being a moron. Okay. So this is Peter Sanborn. He's a reverend. Agreed. He agreed with Oliver that masonry originated in the Garden of Eden, <clears throat> but was Satan, not God. The truth may be that the first grand archmason was Satan, the first secret lodge in Eden between him and Eve, came like Nimrod, rebelled against the priesthood and government of Adam. Notice, even the anti-masons thought Adam had the priesthood. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, he with Tubal Cain, no doubt, were masons. Next slide. Different foundation than what... Uh... George Oliver had, isn't it? 
Yeah, well, people are speculating. Sure, sure. And, and Joe Smith right along with them. So next slide. Okay, that's like, coming up. There we are. There is Nick our friend Nick, 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 Nick again. <clears throat> people do not read prefaces because those who criticize the book think that somehow we are saying that Freemasonry explains everything about Mormonism. Clearly did not read or pay attention to the premise because we're very explicit in the preface. We're talking about one influence among many. Just because you have a disclaimer in the preface stating that you allow other influences, which of course you can't deny, doesn't exempt you from criticism that you overdid your premise that you saw masonry in nearly everything Joseph Smith did. Your methodology is a clear case of parallel mania. Your handling of the first vision and coming forth of the Book of Mormon are obvious examples of this. What is parallel mania? Next slide. I was going to say, I hope you made a slide on that, and there it is. Yeah. This is Samuel Sandmill. His famous uh, article. Now just, now, just, now, just so you know, I'm familiar with this gentleman. He's a hell of a Bible scholar. Seriously. Uh, yeah. that, this is out of the Journal of Biblical Literature. I'm just saying. Yeah, yeah it's older, but still. This is a very famous. Yeah, uh, he's, he's very well known in biblical scholarship. Well, he's responding to the over, the parallel mania, the overworking of parallels dealing with when the uh, Dead Sea Scrolls came out and people went crazy with parallels and things. But <clears throat> we might, he says, we might for our purpose define parallel mania as the, that extravagance among scholars, which first overdoes the supposed similarity in passages and then proceeds to describe source and derivation as if implying literary connection flowing in a inev an inevitable or predetermined direction. The key word in my essay is extravagance. I am not denying that literary parallels and literary influence in the form of source and derivation exist. I'm not seeking to discourage the study of these parallels. However, I am speaking words of caution about exaggeration, about the parallels and about source and derivation. May I, butt in, may I butt in for just a moment? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, that's especially pertinent based on my uh, just, I posted a new video this morning on the, I responded to the fairs. They had a little clip of Hugh Nibley and the parallels Hugh Nibley found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, Book of Enoch, Book of Giants, with the Book of Enoch in Moses 6 and 7. And I actually went through Nibley's entire book, Enoch the Prophet. I was inspired by one of the gentlemen in this chat group, Colby Townsend, who, who uh, really has his yeah. Finger, finger on so much excellent uh, research and showing there are serious issues that LDS apologists slash scholars need to address. But Nibley in his book, Enoch the Prophet, was one of my very favorites as an apologist. I'm, I 
I ate this stuff for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. I believed in it wholeheartedly. And I never once bothered to get the sources that Nibley was using to check those parallels. I simply accepted it. For the first time in my life, I did that. And that is my video this morning, not to give myself a plug, but Kobe Townsend is here. And I, I'd like to say thank you to him publicly as well for his phenomenal research in so many areas that I find interesting, but it directly relevant to this parallel. Yes. Anyway, I'd well, like to bring my testimony. Nibley is oh, a perfect oh. example of that. Oh, flawless. Absolutely sensationally so. And I demonstrated that extensively in my video this morning. So, okay, now back to your okay, point. Okay, so I'm, I'm, I will say that I'm so, I'm glad Colby's in the discussion. He's interested yeah, yeah, in he's, doing Mormon type studies, uh, associated type studies. I'm glad he's uh, participating in the dialogue. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Wonderful people in the chat. Cheryl's still here too, so that's awesome. Yeah, all right. Thanks to everybody for sticking around. Uh, we're she's hanging in there with us. We're headed towards the end of this thing. Yep. <laughs> okay, so the next slide. Some attributes of parallel mania. So I just got a few off of the internet here and there, and put some in my, in my in, in there myself, just to show that I'm going after the exaggeration that you know uh, parallels that. that that people make. So we're talking about not all parallels, but an exaggerated use of parallels, parallels that, that uh, are kind of maybe over the top or not well-founded. Right. So parallels devoid of significance. These are attributes of parallelmania or comparisonitis. <laughs> <laughs> Comparisonitis, huh? Comparisonitis. We, we now call it nibliitis, but that's probably <laughs> somewhat rude. <laughs> overdoing in this is this is an important one. Overdoing inevitable parallels when comparing similar phenomena, sort of like, you know, uh, comparing, gathering parallels from books that are written in the same genre. So some of the parallels are expected to be there. Uh, so they're no big deal when you find them, you know. Um, yeah. Downplaying differences, parallels without context, parallels based on highly abstract level of comparison or universals or archetypes, which hide differences. Exaggerating the importance of trifling resemblances. Cherry Boy, there's there's Nibleon, Enoch, and the scrolls right there. Yeah. Sorry to Trif interrupt. Trifling you. resemblances? Yeah. Oh, my heck. It's a nightmare. Okay. okay. Anyway, sorry. Oh, and then picking. the next one, too. Yeah. Cherry picking. Weak parallels and believing quantity adds up to certainty. So the more, if you have a lot of weak parallels... It's sort of like, yeah, you know, what's 10 times one? It's still 10, you know, kind of a thing. Overdoing the supposed similarity, parallels that rely on rhetorical ability of the scholar. You know, that's a nibbly thing, I think. Oh, his rhetorical ability to make them seem similar based on his, yeah, yeah. his ability is, to describe them. 
saying that was some some of his funnest work was finding nibbly <coughs> handwritten notes in the Enoch materials, and that is what helped Colby recognize that Nibbly misunderstood the. I'm I'm not trying to shuffle shuffle us off the now. I've got Nibbly on the brain because I focused on him all week <laughs> because of the hints Colby gave me in my interview with him. So, but this this yeah. Anyway, keep going, keep going. All right. Um. Parallels that are too creative and subjective, requiring subjective validation. These things should raise red flags and alert us to manipulation of the data. Uh, next slide. Revisiting the first vision. Okay. Do first vision accounts mirror the Masonic rite of illumination? We have 13 parallels listed right here that they, they listed for us uh, again. Uh, some of them are forced or artificial, but most are insignificant given the circumstance or context of the two things being compared. What do I mean by that? Next yeah, slide. What do you mean by that, <laughs> Mr. Mogul? Yes. Yeah. Remember, remember I showed this, okay? Characteristics yeah. of Methodist conversion narratives. And I listed eight things that were similar uh, uh, to uh, the first vision in Methodist conversion narratives. Yeah. Okay. Characteristic. So recall that I discussed the similarities between the first vision and Methodist conversion narratives. This list of attributes is not mine. It originates with non-Mormon scholar D.E. Andrews, who's, who wasn't doing anything about the first vision at all. Uh, she uh, was just um, uh, comparing Methodist stories and this commonality among Methodist stories of conversion. And it happened to line up Christopher C. Jones uh, alerted uh, me and others to this, uh, her article. And he compared it to the first vision and it seemed to line up there also. These parallels are far more salient than their comparisons to the rite of illumination, mostly because it culminates in an actual vision and not with the worshipful, the worshipful master giving you a secret handshake and word. Nick thought he could just brush this aside with an off-the-cuff remark. Next slide. Nick says, none of this discounts the fact that there were multiple accounts at that time of visions of God and Jesus or any other cultural things. Again, nowhere are we saying that only masonry influences these things. We are, we are saying that Freemasonry was an influence. Nick has missed the significance of these conversion narratives. Recall, in my discussion of parallel mania, I mentioned overdoing inevitable parallels when comparing similar phenomena. Those kinds of parallels are not significant and do not demonstrate derivation. This is mostly the case since the two things being compared aren't unique and therefore are not compelling. This is the problem of comparing the right of illumination with the first vision. Both are conversions or initiations from darkness to light, a very common theme in religious or 
quasi-religious organizations, especially those based on the Bible. And with a little creativity, the first vision can be made to fit many similar situations. Would you be impressed if I made a list of parallels between two science fiction books involving space travel? No. The similarity of these conversion narratives to the first vision is obvious. This creates a problem for Nick and Cheryl's evidence because by implication, these narratives are also comparable to the right of illumination. All of them are comparable to each other. Next slide. So we have a comparison between the right of illumination and the Methodist conversion narratives. So I lined up all 13, and, and if we had time, I'd go through each one. But uh, there's a fixed structure. There's a common experience. It's a similar genre, in other words. Search for light. There's a personal crisis, concern for salvation, setting, setting and qualifications. The qualifications in Christianity, sincere and have faith. Hoodwinked. In masonry, you know, you're blind, spiritually yeah. lost, and you can go on. You know, uh, there's there's a decision to pray. There's a, on six scripture, Matthew 7, 7, knock and it shall be opened, is one of the scriptures in that uh, the authors of the myth of infinite try to emphasize. Uh, it, it's, it's among the meaningful passages of scripture that those who talk about their conversion narratives have used there's reflection pondering secret place camp meeting or secluded place kneeling for prayer prayer in an uncharacteristic manner bound by unseen power the cable toe which is the noose around the neck uh, mm -hmm. the devil or dark force attempts to stop the person from praying convert rescued by a redemption experience illumination which is the blindfold being removed, receiving a secret grip or and name on the Christian side, a vision of a heavenly things, leading convert in a state of inexpressible joy, various content. Uh, instruction by degrees, a desire to join the Methodist church, language of archetype, emotional faith-promoting language being used. That's why these stories are being told. So... Yeah. You can see, and and they're all interlinked. And so, how can we, how can you really uh, say that there's anything uniquely Masonic? Actually, there's the cable toe is not very significant to me. But the one thing that really uh, cried out as uh, manipulation. Uh, the instruction by degrees. <laughs> no, uh, I'll tell you, that'll be in the next slide. But so most of the parallels are expected and not significant and does not prove derivation in any way. Nothing unique was offered by the authors of Method Infinite to distinguish the right of illumination as a source. Still, there are problems of padding the list with irrelevant and creative parallels. Cheryl argued that the combined number of parallels added up to proof. It doesn't. Next slide. <clears throat> Cheryl says, 
Perhaps you can pick out one or two similarities and say that's weak, but when you put them all together, this makes a very strong case. And when you put the first vision accounts and all their Masonic similarities together, you can see that there is a very strong case that Masonry may have influenced the story of the first vision. But when you have so many that fit together like this, then it is a very, it is very strong evidence. The fitting together is accomplished by the similarity of the genre. But recall that in my survey of the attributes of parallel mania, I mentioned cherry picking, weak parallels, and believing that quantity adds up to certainty. Sandmill had something to say about this too. Mm -hmm. Next slide. The mere abundance of so-called parallels is its own distortion. For the height of the pile misleads him who reads as he runs to suppose that he is dealing with sifted material. The distortion lies also in the circumstance that quantity lends a tone of authority all too often submitted to. The counterbalance is notably absent. The qualifying is withheld and the pile acts as an obstruction to seeing what really should be seen. Why, I must ask, pile up the alleged parallels if, in, if the end result is to show a forced, artificial, and untenable distinction even within the admitted parallels. Mm. Okay, so the next slide. So here I show comparison between the right of illumination and the first vision. And my comment on the last column of what I think happens mm -hmm. is, you know, um, say, for example, fixed structure. Well, the first vision was fixed after 1838 anyway. Not significant. It's the same genre. It, you, it's expected. And there's some manipulation with this. Search for light. Uh, on Joseph Smith, salvation, true church, reason changed, actually, in it from 1832 to 38. Not significant, same genre. That's my judgment. So mm -hmm. you can see my judgment on many of these matters. Right. Um, the, the, the line um, 10 and 11 are particularly manipulative, in my view, or exa and exaggerated. The cable toe. Joe Smith is bound by an unseen power. It's not the same. It's contrived. And 11 is illumination, blindfold, remove, secret grip, and name. Okay. Heavenly vision, answer to prayer. In 1832, it was you're saved through faith. Then 1838, he's called, it's a prophetic calling, basically. Um, it's, the similarity is exaggerated, contrived. Worshipful master is not God. Okay, the Shekinah, which is the conduit of light, the, the pillar of light is not mentioned in the rite of illumination. Um, it's mentioned in Masonic sources like George Oliver talks about it because it's a part of the Old Testament. Um, this is where it gets to the manipulation part that kind of bothered me, which is uh, on page 82 of their book. They 
as they're describing this initiation occurring, they get to the part <clears throat> that the worshipful met the the uh, illumination part. Mm -hmm. In a column of light, they write, the master mason of the lodge, dressed in glittering finery, stepped down from his throne in the east to stand before the newly enlightened candidate for Christian masons, for Christian Freemasons, this master of the lodge was a representation of the Lord of the universe's condescension from the divine throne to instruct individuals on earth. Okay, so this column of light, there's no column of light in these lodges, especially in the 19th century. Um, Joseph Smith wasn't didn't see it. Even if he read William Morgan's book, he he wanted a picture to column of light, the worshipful master in a column of light in glittering finery. This is all somebody in the modern age that has seen the ceremony describing it and trying to make it more like the first vision where the father and son appear in, in this column of light. No source is given at, at this point, no source is given for the connection between the worshipful master and God. Nothing is said in the rite of illumination or entered apprentice ceremony. The Shekinah, which the authors associate with the pillar of fire mentioned in the Old Testament that guided Moses and the Israelites through the desert, is not mentioned in the ceremony either. The Shekinah was a pillar of fire by night, but a pillar of smoke by day. In fact, it isn't always a pillar but refers to God's glory generally. Oliver mostly associates the Shekinah with the bright cloud or shining luminous body that appeared between the cherub of the Ark of the Covenant. That's in his Antiquities, page 352. Mm -hmm. Next slide. Now we're going to talk, this is the last part. We're going to talk about Joseph Smith's motivation for joining masonry in Nauvoo, which we had a dispute about. And they have a dispute with me and Mormon apologists. Mm -hmm. um, those who assert Joseph Smith was sincere about joining masonry in Nauvoo because he wanted to restore most, yeah, yeah, must deal with his 1839 statement, disavowing Samson Advard's Danite organization that was bound by Masonic-like oaths of secrecy, Joseph Smith wrote, Let our covenant be that of the everlasting covenant, as is contained in the Holy Writ, and things that God hath revealed unto us. Pure friendship always becomes weakened the very moment you undertake to make it stronger by penal oaths and secrecy. Your humble servant or servants intend from henceforth to disappropriate everything that is not in accordance with the fullness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, he didn't stick to that very long, did he, once he got the endowment? Right, that's, a, that's my point. Oh, so, I'm making your point for you. Yeah, baby. Yeah, baby. So, it's on target. That's, that's for you, Mark Crispin. <laughs> so uh, as of, you know, Joseph Smith's 1839 statement against oath-bound brotherhoods seems to indicate that he, know, he had no plans to embrace masonry. 
at that mo at that time. Smith had eight years in Ohio to establish a, a Masonic Lodge, but never did. Not even when he had completed the temple. So what changed Joseph Smith's mind? Yeah. Next, next slide. All right. Let's take a look at this. This is getting interesting. John C. Bennett. Oh, him. Him? Yeah. This scoundrel. <laughs> Oh um, man, Joseph wasn't a very good, Joseph wasn't a very good reader of character, was he? <laughs> no, he, I think he was. I think he was. Uh, he Bennett just destroyed <laughs> Smith in just a matter of a year and a half. No. He took he took polygamy and completely trashed it, and then he shared all of Joseph's secrets. I mean, yeah, yeah. there is that. Anyway, that's There's what I that meant. problem. But Wally, yeah. he was a useful tool while he was a tool. Oh, sure. Oh, sure. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I cannot argue with that. So John C. Bennett. Oh, no, sorry. Go back. <laughs> sorry. Okay. Uh, John C. Bennett's influence should not be, should be taken more seriously. He was baptized shortly after his arrival in Nauvoo in September 1840 and quickly rose to prominence. He was instrumental in obtaining characters, or I mean charters, excuse me, <laughs> He was instrumental in obtaining charters for the city of Nauvoo, Nauvoo Legion, and the University of Nauvoo in December 1840. He was elected first mayor of Nauvoo, chancellor of the University of Nauvoo, and major general of the Nauvoo Legion. On 8th of March, 1841, he was temporarily appointed as assistant president to Joseph Smith. Bennett had been an active Mason since about 1827 in nearly every place he resided in Ohio, Belmont, Pickaway, and Barnesville. Bennett, Bennett's biographer describes him as the main instigator in seeking a uh, dispensation for the Nafu Lodge from the Bodley Lodge at Quincy, Illinois in June, 1841. Almost immediately, Bennett was embroiled in accusations that he had been expelled from the Pickaway Lodge, but neither Joseph Smith nor worshipful master George Miller seemed to care. If Bennett was the main instigator of establishing a Nauvoo Lodge, no doubt with Joseph Smith's approval, it would seem he would have been motivated by social and political concerns. I lost the, the professor's gone. Hurry. Uh, next slide. I'm coming, oh, I'm coming. Hold on. Oh. I was just about to say, I'll read it anyway. Only the BYP can get away with crap like that. Okay, next slide. Okay, Cheryl says, we drilled down and we looked at exactly what Joseph Smith does in Illinois in, uh, in Nauvoo. And he does not curry favor. In fact, he does many things to alienate other people right from the beginning. If he wanted to curry favor, he would not be behaving the way he did. And the Lodge would not have done things they did. I have already discussed the idealist fallacy and the problem with using uh, contradictory behavior and rhetoric to decide historical issues. The argument that Joseph Smith didn't join Masonry to curry political and social advantages, because if that were his goal, 
he wouldn't have alienated Masonic leaders is therefore a very weak, a very weak argument. They seem unaware that their argument raises even more serious problems with their interpretation. Next slide. Two quotes from Method Infinite state what the authors think Joseph Smith's motivation for joining Freemasonry was. So on page 441, this is all towards a conclusion or part of it, I believe. Uh -huh. Smith's use of Masonic Midrash in developing new scripture, as well as his aspiration to restore and eventually lead all American Masonry were important structural elements in construction in the construction of Mormonism. So they, they suggest here that his goal in joining Masonry was to restore and eventually lead all American Freemasonry. Okay, the second quote from the same page lower onto the next page. Smith's vision likely included a reconciliation of what he saw as spurious Freemasonry and the pure form he had restored. There is not enough evidence to know how Smith planned to merge the two. So, but he plans to merge the two. They just don't know how he was going to do that. So if Joseph Smith didn't curry favor, according to them, how was he to restore masonry or merge his church with American masonry? But what behavior are these authors talking about? Besides provoking Masonic leaders by introducing his endowment ceremony, what exactly did Joseph Smith do that was diametrically opposed, that was a quote from the introduction, to wanting to make Masonic allies? Cheryl alludes to the irregularities in the Masonic, in the Nauvoo Lodge, but Joseph Smith didn't have anything to do with that. That was like mostly Bennett's fault. Nick gave a more specific reason in the next slide. Joseph completely alienates Jonathan Nye, who is an extremely influential person to the point of being made an honorary member of many grand lodges. When Jonathan Nye dies and it's reported to Joseph, he basically says, great. That's wonderful news and goes on to accuse Jonathan Nye of adultery and trying to start an opposition lodge, which is true, and says, this is what happens when you go against the buckler of Jehovah's belt, which was a code phrase at the time for the Danites. So yeah, Joseph definitely was not focused on developing political and social currency. Unless Joseph Smith is completely compliant to Masonic leaders like Jonathan Nye, he is not currying favor and therefore wasn't using masonry to gain social advantage or protection. This makes no sense. A closer look at the source, dated 25th of April, 1843, doesn't support Nick's use of it. Next slide. Okay, so we have parallel columns. This is a history of the church on the left 
And the source is William Clayton's journal on the right. So this is what the source says from the history of the church, uh, from the manuscript I'm reading. When I was told that Grand Master GM Nye was dead, which caused the following remark, when Nye was here trying to pull me by the nose and trample on me, I inquired of the Lord if I was to be led by the nose and cuffed about by such a man I received for answer, wait a minute. Nye is dead and any man or mason who attempts to ride me down and oppose me will run against the boss of Jehovah's buckler and will quickly move and be quickly moved out of the way. Nye in this part wasn't in the original. Nye was a hypocritical Presbyterian preacher and was known to have committed adultery in this city, added above the line, and violated his oath as a master mason. He started, he started in, a mason is the key word. Gosh, dang it. I swear, mason I swear my phone is 200 yards that way. <laughs> oh, I wonder what the hell is. <laughs> okay, maybe it's your computer. Continuing, um, he started an opposition lodge on the hill called the Nye Lodge, <laughs> on which subject I said, they will do us all the injury they can, but let them go ahead, although it will result in a division of the lodge. So, uh, Jehovah's Buckler, by the way, had nothing to do with the Danites, as I, uh, that I can determine. It was a phrase used by Joseph Smith's contemporaries and himself on other occasions. Hmm. Uh, Joseph, and it's kind of, it's from, it's a biblical phrase, actually, from Psalms, I believe. It is, Joseph yeah. Smith didn't initiate the conflict. So, no, with nigh. Joseph Smith did not initiate the conflict. Nye did by starting an opposition lodge. The irregularities in the Nauvoo Lodge that brought Nye's attention and scrutiny weren't Joseph Smith's fault. It was Nye's effort to divide the Nauvoo Lodge and organize an opposition lodge in Nauvoo in February 1843 that angered Joseph Smith and other Mormon Masons. Mm -hmm. The authors on page 304 tried to blame Joseph Smith for provoking Nye suggesting that Nye may have interpreted Joseph Smith's discussion of discerning between different kinds of spirits by shaking their hands as a corruption of Masonic ritual. This is totally an unwarranted interpretation of Joseph Smith's teachings and a nonsensical speculation about Nye. Nonetheless, Joseph Smith found himself unavoidably struggling with Nye over the Nauvoo Lodge. And although he resented it, he did nothing. He was told to wait. This actually shows just the opposite of what Nick was trying to make of it. It shows Joseph Smith being restrained. Joseph Smith's accusing Nye of adultery is also missing from the Clayton Journal. That detail was added by the editors when they were composing this part of the history about 1855. Hmm. 
So that concludes my critique of their critique. You're going to close on Thanks that. Thanks for listening, everybody. You've been very Oh, I, I think this audience has thoroughly enjoyed it. They've, for the most part, stuck around. And I, I have truly enjoyed all of your obvious work. Uh, yeah, a lot of it was repetition, repeat somewhat, the, the critique back and forth and all, but... Uh, I think that brings us up to Repetition never hurts because we really only do, I'm studying Greek this year because I'm doing my New Testament commentary. And I promise I'm repeating a lot of Greek a lot of times, you know. In Archangel Logos, John 1 and 1, I've repeated that dumb thing 200 times. So, so thank you so much. This has been absolutely awesome awesome uh we're we're two hours 15 minutes glorious time for my opinion i could do another two hours and 15 minutes with you but uh so we're probably you're very welcome you guys um they they asked about a question and answer um i will have dan vogel on for the rest of my life, as far as that goes on my shows, he's so full of information that we will do many, many, many more shows together and we will do question and answer sessions. I promise. Yeah. If that's okay with you, Dan, I have, I have so much fun with you. I can't stand it. So it's I'm all glad right. I, I give you a little rest there. Cause I kind of, you, uh, you that's a true friend right there. No. And I, I've, <laughs> I've appreciated having Cheryl and Nick on and, if they so desire, I'll welcome to have them on again. It's not a big deal for me. I know I know there were some comments in the audience. Uh, what's the whole point of this discussion? Well, uh, there's reasons. So we're all good. So anyway, uh, thank you to the audience. We do appreciate your attendance and your excitement and your interesting comments. Uh, I haven't put a lot of them up because I've been so absorbed in what Dan was saying. So anyway, uh, Remember, do well, have fun, be good, smile a lot. It makes people wonder what you're up to. Uh, I am getting ready to post new information, new podcasts up on my backyardprofessor.org. Dan is working on some new videos. Go subscribe to his YouTube channel. You don't want to miss his videos. Listen, it was Dan Vogel's videos on the book of Abraham that caused me to go, there's still stuff I am unclear on. And because of his videos, I then purchased his book. And that's what brought me back into this with a tidal wave force of interest and excitement. And that's why I did my videos on the book of Abraham, which so many hundreds of you have expressed you've enjoyed. So if you've enjoyed my junk, you'll enjoy his crap a lot more. I mean, if you've enjoyed my research, you will enjoy his scholarship. So <laughs> we got to have some fun. So thanks you all. We're going to head out. Appreciate all of you. We will see you soon. Be good. I love y'all. We got